Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Um, so here we are, we're uh, just beginning a new series uh, on what uh, is called sort of in, for, for thousands of years in the life of the Jewish community, the Shema, which is really just a, a very, very simple, basic prayer. That would be something that would be prayed by uh, Jewish believers um, in the morning before uh, they uh, get their feet on the ground and at night before they go to bed and uh, something that Jesus would have prayed. And the idea is, is that in looking at it, uh, we can begin to sort of understand maybe what spiritual formation looked like uh, from Jesus' perspective. Uh, so we're just going to uh, sort of talk about that for a little while. I'll introduce the series here. Uh, first off, I'm going to show you a beautiful picture of dinner. She looks fantastic. Anybody's hungry? Uh, the sermon will be under an hour and a half. I want you to know for sure. Um, what we're looking at there is, you know, it's a beautiful sort of community meal and my personal kryptonite. Um, as a person, I love food, and there's absolutely nothing worse uh, for me than being uh, around a table that's full of, like, potlucks are absolutely the worst for me. It's like, it's like I, I can have all the uh, passion to eat healthy and eat so healthy all week, and then home church kills me every single time. So I don't know, we're doing something wrong with that whole system, but uh, there's this thing inside of me that uh, would like to be able to eat better, would like to be able to do better uh, with, you know, that sort of very practical area of life, but the reality is, is that uh, the very thing I hate, I do, and I actually sometimes end up here. So sometimes it's not just potluck, and sometimes it's not just uh, the meals that, uh, that we have together as community, which I think are legitimate, wonderful uh, celebrations, but uh, we have something inside of us as people that are wanting to do something uh, that we're having struggles doing and wanting not to do things and, and being passionately stuck in doing them. Uh, for me, every single time when I come into Carlton Place, uh, this is uh, my vice, this is my area of sin. Those signs that we drive by with A&W on them or McDonald's and Lord help us, there better not ever be a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> this is this is a huge, huge struggle for me, for really, this is an area... Uh, of, of sin wrestle for me. The very thing I hate, I, I am often tempted to do. Now I'm doing fairly well. Uh, some of my uh, forebears were with, that I carry the genetics with were in the 400 pound range, so I'm doing all right, but I've got a ways to go. I'm not in a place of being as healthy as I'd like to be. So the things I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the things that I uh, do want to do, sometimes I don't do. One of my dreams for a long time has been to uh, write a book, and I have a couple of projects that I've been working on, and I pick away at them a little bit and do a little bit of writing here and a little bit of writing there. But in order to accomplish that task of sort of fulfilling that dream of actually uh, writing a book that I would be really uh, delighted to share with the world, that would be a sense of uh, the heart of God that I think he's given me uh, for the world, that requires some discipline, it requires further work than I've been able to do. Uh, and very often I find myself caught up in minutiae doing things that aren't important for me to do when that is something I probably ought to do. And so that's something that Paul describes uh, in his life, just what it was like for him as a believer, and there's lots around this little text in Romans, but um, the reality is that Paul uh, described this war inside of himself, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
And that for us is just a reality. Is everybody, or is everybody else here absolutely completely in line with who they think they ought to be before the Lord right now? So it's only me that struggles, okay. Uh, well, I'm gonna go home and cry now. Um, the reality is that's where, that's our condition. That's where we're at. There's something that we want to be uh, that we're not yet, and there's something that we, we don't want to be that we are. And so we live in this tension, in this wrestling, in this desire to become more. Uh, over the summer holidays, I spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, engaging with, you know, how can I grow? How can I grow in some of these areas that are struggles and that are challenges for me? One of the great little books I came across was a book called Your Future Self Will Thank You um, by a guy with an unfortunate name. And uh, <laughs> it's a book all about willpower. It's a book all about uh, uh, self-control and self-discipline. And uh, one of the sort of things that he points to is that uh, willpower is actually a finite resource. How many of you know that when you wake up in the morning, it is easier to resist eating a whole big whack of food that you shouldn't eat than it is by the end of the day when you're tired and you're coming home from your work and you're exhausted? Right? There's something, like, and this is something that scientists have looked at, sociologists have looked at. Uh, willpower is something that we have, but it's actually a finite resource. Uh, so they did studies on college students, because who else do you do studies on but college students? Because they're, they're so much fun and, and available. And what they did was they took a bunch of college students and they took them into a room and uh, they put a whole whack of donuts uh, in, in each of the rooms. And one group of college students, they uh, brought into the room and said, you can't eat those donuts. Um, you just got to stay in the room with the donuts for a while, which sounds like torture for college students, right? Sounds like torture for me. Another room group, they put in the, a room with a similar pile of donuts and said, you can eat all the donuts you want, have fun. Eat the donuts. And then they took them into a second room and said, here's a math problem for you to work on. And it was actually an impossible math program. Uh, problem. It was one that actually couldn't be done. And what they found was that the students uh, who uh, had resisted eating the donuts and used their willpower on not eating those donuts that were there, they came into the room and they lasted about five minutes before they decided it was an unsolvable problem they were out eating, just like that. The ones who had uh, fed themselves and hadn't exerted their will not to eat the donuts came into the room with a math problem and they worked on it for like 20 minutes trying to solve the thing just naturally had more follow-through, more discipline because they hadn't used it up on the donuts. And either that or sugar really fuels work on math pro problems. I don't know. I, I think there are some controls in this study for us to understand that a little bit better. Um, but the reality is, is that uh, what, what the author of this book has said is that the part of what needs to happen for us is uh, something in terms of habit building. and something in terms of discipline building. That there's foundations, there's small steps to take that, in order, uh, that help us to grow into different people. And of course the answer, uh, of, uh, we of course look towards uh, having our hearts healed and we look towards the Holy Spirit coming and touching us and, and rewriting you know, some of the lies in our hearts into truth and, and all kinds of things like that. But a good part of us growing as people is finding those habitual practices upon which to build our lives that ultimately lead us to being able to make good decisions as we go. Right? And, and so that's why there's so much interest in our culture right now in, in spiritual disciplines and building those kinds of foundations in our lives. And so the question that that sort of left me with was, was what are the spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices of Jesus? How did, how did he do it? Or what did he model for his disciples? Obviously, Jesus being fully God and fully man, uh, we don't understand the mystery of why Jesus needed to go away into the wilderness and pray. 
uh, when he was fully God, but there was something about him that would become depleted and he would need to be alone with the Father, the humanness of him, the human side of him needed uh, that ministry with the Lord and needed to have discipline uh, in order to begin to follow God and do what he was called to do for God. And we don't completely understand the mystery of that, but it, it begs that question. What, what did Jesus do? Because we can look at spiritual disciplines. We look at great books like uh, Richard Foster's book uh, on, uh, on spiritual disciplines and, and think about all of those sorts of things. But most of them are sort of based in sort of Roman Catholic, uh, early 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century Christianity based in, you know, Ignatian prayer and all of those things. But those things uh, just didn't feel like they were taking me back to uh, the story of Jesus enough. And, and in sort of wrestling with that, I came across another writer named Scott McKnight uh, who, who was asking the same question. And one of the things that he pointed to was uh, this very simple prayer uh, called uh, the Shema, which is actually quite a long prayer. It's an excerpt from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it goes on, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And, uh, and what we know is that Jesus is a person probably, very likely, like any Jewish boy, uh, prayed this prayer regularly when he rose in the morning and before he went to bed at night. And there's lots of different things that we could look at. We could look at the Lord's Prayer and other ways that Jesus uh, prayed. But I wanted to just center in on this one and really look at what is it about this prayer uh, that became so important for the Jewish nation for so many years. How do we see it in the life of Jesus and how do we see it uh, going forward uh, into the Apostle Paul? Because we see it into the life of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 4. Uh, that it's something that uh, Jesus prayed and then something that was transmitted uh, forward into, into other believers who followed him. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to read actually a text from Mark 12 to look at this prayer that's back in Deuteronomy 6. I want to look at this prayer from the, through the lens of Jesus and see what we can learn really about how can praying what Jesus prayed help me love like Jesus loved? How can praying what Jesus prayed help me learn to love the way Jesus loved? Because isn't that our desire? To learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And that involves probably not going to A&W very much. Or whatever it is that your personal struggle is. Or whatever it is that's a dream that God has called you to that you're not walking towards because you're distracted by other things. So there's something beautiful in this prayer and there's so much theological richness in it. We're going to just dig into it for a while. We're going to start with Mark chapter 12 and we're just going to read a little piece of the story here. Um... So one of the scribes uh, came up and heard them disputing with one another. So Jesus was having a discussion with, uh, with some scribes uh, in, a, in the previous part of the text. And, he, and this, this guy came up to Jesus and said, hey, here, you're answering these things well. I want to hear what you think about this. He said, so, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But isn't that something that you would like? to be able to hear Jesus saying, hear those words echoed in your heart, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting closer, young person, to figuring this thing out, to figuring out how to love me better, figuring out how to follow me better. That's, that's, that's how we all want to grow. And so here it is, the story, the scribe comes up to Jesus and he's uh, really you know, wrestling with this, this question that we're talking about that's central to us. How do we live the way God wants us to live? How do we live a life that is more full? How do we live a life that is more holy, that is more pure, that is more sort of unified and, and aligned and more joyful? That's sort of the dream for all of us. And Jesus, of course, answers with this, with the Shema. And this is the prayer that we see in Deuteronomy 6. And what I've done is extracted from what you're seeing on the screen there. I've extracted from it some of the parts that sort of Jesus added. Because what you're going to see here is that Jesus actually does something really radical. When this young man comes to him uh, and says, uh, what you sh you know, says, what should I do? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus begins to rattle off the Shema, which is this prayer that this young man would have heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Here, O Israel the Lord our God is one. And a, and a little child in, in Hebrew school or even with his parents uh, would have heard that. And what they would do is they would cover their eyes and they would go, Hear, O Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. It would be concentration and focus. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. They would pray it just like that. And it'd be so familiar to him. So I can just imagine this scribe sort of in his head going, oh brother, I've heard this before. What's he talking about? Right, I've heard this a million times. And then Jesus continues. Uh, there's a second part that happened under this uh, as they were praying the Shema. And it's a part that's not often written because it's a part that the person who's praying the Shema would now whisper to themselves. So you proclaim, hear, O Lord, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you would whisper with your eyes covered. And then you would lower your hand and you would whisper under your breath, blessed be the name of your glorious kingdom forever and ever. You'd whisper that response to the Shema under your breath. And I could just hear Jesus whispering it. Blessed is the name of my glorious kingdom forever and ever. Hear Jesus whispering that. Um, so we don't see that in the text, but it's something that always went with the Shema. And it goes on. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And what Jesus uh, adds here, what we see added in the book of Mark is, and all your mind and all your strength. Uh, that four-part uh, formulation for the Shema, love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, that mind part wasn't in the Hebrew text in Deuteronomy, but it's actually something that was added uh, later on in probably the second or third century BC when the Old Testament was translated into Greek for the Greek-speaking people uh, so that, that they could understand that what the makeup of what humanity was meant to be. The Greeks couldn't understand what a human could be without a clear understanding of intellect being a part of it. Whereas Hebrew intellect and heart are something that are woven together. But Greeks couldn't understand that unless they're separated. And so Jesus uh, uh, really honors the, the, the Greek culture and points toward the future inclusion of Greek-speaking uh, people in the church of Gentiles, in the church and puts this here in Mark. Um, 
And Mark, of course, who's writing to, uh, to, to Greek people, is, is sure to include this. And so this, uh, together, adding this part at the very end, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, uh, is what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed. And again, this is a radical amendment to this ancient prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then Jesus just slips this in. He does a little bit more editing and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a radical addition by Jesus. This text in uh, Leviticus 19.18 has never appeared in any literature prior to Jesus speaking. It has appeared uh, immediately after and with uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus adds this, hold on, let's do the vertical and let's do the horizontal too. And we see that in Jesus' ministry and his life, his passion, incredible passion uh, to see uh, us loving God and loving people and doing those things together. And Jesus puts these together as the two greatest commandments. And if you look through at the book of Genesis and you look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and all the laws that are written there, you could just put uh, vertical and horizontal, a V and an H beside every one because some of them lead us to care for one another and some of us point us towards Almighty. And so there's this incredible uh, thing. And so that's what our um, series is going to be like over the next uh, five weeks. We're going to actually take this apart piece by piece. Uh, this first week, what we're going to do is we're going to look here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and see this. I'm going to help us understand how this is absolutely a foundation of belonging and security and connectedness with God and an understanding of who he is, the theological foundation on, upon which all of the ways that we love are ultimately built. We're going to talk about what we need to know to be people who are people who love God and love others uh, based on this theological foundation. And then over the next four weeks, what we're going to look at is what does it mean to be a person who is, is full of heart love? What does it mean to love God with my emotions? Some of us are strong with that. Some of us are good with that. To love God with our affections. Some of us are raise your hands in worship and, and I'm absolutely all over it. Uh, emotionally intelligent uh, people who love to love God that way. And, and that's a strength for some of us, but an area where some of us need to grow. Uh, love the Lord with all your soul. What that really speaks to there is love, the God, with, love God with your uh, guts. Love God with your personality. Love God with the makeup that you have. If you're an Enneagram 8 like I am, what does it mean to love God as an Enneagram 8 and to uh, care for people in that way or a disc D or whatever your personality type is? Uh, what does it mean to love God out of who you are, out of your guts, out of your instincts and learn to allow those instincts to be transformed because Jesus is always calling us to have our instincts uh, transformed, right? To become more and more like him. What does it mean to love the God, God intellectually? What does it mean to love him with your mind? Maybe some of you are like, oh man, this sermon itself is like, oh, too many words. Like, give me a break. This is like sitting in a lecture. I'm so bored. Oh. Right? And I'm like saying, the Bible says you have to listen to me. <laughs> right? Uh, we have to learn to love the Lord with our intellect, with our minds, what it is to engage and to think and to process and to, and, and to read. And then what it is to love the Lord with all your strength. And what that what really means, what does it mean for you to love the Lord with your body? What does it mean for you to love him with your effort, with the part of you that takes uh, the will and intentions of your heart and transmits that to the world around you? What is it? We're going to talk even a little bit about fitness. We're going to talk, which I'm the last person who's qualified. We should get somebody else in for that. Um, but uh, to talk about what it means to, uh, to, to love, the God, love God in tangible, tangible physical ways. Because to be whole people, we have to love him with all of this, Right? 
we don't get to just say I'm a heart person and uh, I'm not going to read a book. I'm not going to read the Bible. We don't get to, get to say, man, I just love uh, to read the scriptures and understand it, but, but not to try to engage our hearts. We're meant to be whole and complete people that love him with everything that we are. And, for, and, and, and we all recognize struggle and challenge and strength and emphases in that, but there's ways to go and ways to grow. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, five weeks. What does the Bible mean by heart? What does it mean by soul? What does it mean by mind? What does it mean by strength? And how do we take heart, soul, mind, strength and learn to love God and learn to love our neighbors with that? So we're going to be just unpacking the reality of, of doing life together. But what I want to do first now is provide for us just that theological foundation upon which uh, all of that love is based. And we're just going to pick apart word by word this first phrase. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai Chad. I'm just saying that so I sound super spiritual because Scott McKnight uh, did that and, and I thought that was a good idea to be at least as spiritual as Scott McKnight. So, uh, you know, I, just a little preacher competitiveness there. Um, but the Shema, that, that part listen, and, and actually if you have time, just search the word Shema on Bible Project uh, because there's just a brilliant little Bible Project thing on, on that, unpacking the meaning of the word. But just one of the beautiful things to point out about it is in Hebrew, that word Shema really means listen and obey. How many of you wish your kids knew Shema? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Come on. So if they have heard you, they're going to do what they have heard. <laughs> right? That's like my children are like that completely, you know, all the time. But isn't that a longing? Like, don't, don't we want to have that? And don't we kind of want to be that? Don't we want to close the gap between our ability to hear what God is saying and to execute what he's calling us to? Without so much, like you, you and I know, like if we pray and sit and analyze what goes in between us, feeling like there's something we're called to do and us actually doing it, there's a pretty long journey between point A and point B. It's like, I don't want to. That's not going to feel good. That's going to cost too much. That's gonna, right? We've got a whole list of things between hearing and obeying. But in the Hebrew, like there's actually not two separate words for hear and obey. Like hear the Lord. That, just, that, that means obey the Lord. There's not a Hebrew word for obey. The Hebrew way, word for obey is here. If you've heard it, you're doing it. Now, we should all learn to raise our children this way because uh, they, lo they, they love it, right? It's a huge challenge. But don't you want that singleness of purpose? Don't you want that uh, singleness of, of passion to be hearing the voice of the Lord and, and just to be instinctively and naturally walking out what he's called us to do? So we want to be people uh, for whom hearing is obeying. Isn't that who we want to be? That's who, that's who I want to be more and more and more. And I think what we're going to see is, I think praying prayers like this and digging into prayers like this, uh, for, for me, my experience since, since I sort of heard this and began digging into it is I've started praying the Shema every day. When I uh, get out of bed, uh, before I allow my feet to touch the ground, I say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And when I do that, somehow it's easier to get my Crocs on, because I'm super fashionable, and walk down the hall and pick up my Bible instead of my cell phone. Because I started that moment with a moment of prayer. I started that moment with a declaration that I want to be a person who obeys. And I'm finding it easier. Uh, back to the book that we talked about, uh, Your Future Self Will Thank You. Uh, building that small discipline in my life is actually, I think, making other disciplines easier as I go. 
I think it builds on it. And I don't know, we're gonna see what the trajectory of this looks like over time. But I think, I, and, and pray that as I, as I really try to pray this in my heart, not religiously, I think I can grow as a person. I think it's a part of growing. It's part of what Jesus modeled for his disciples. So the second phrase here, or the second word here is, O Israel. And I think that's just uh, the reason that really stuck in Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, the, the writer of Deuteronomy could have written that, Hear, O children of Abraham. Hear, O sons of Isaac. But he didn't. He chose Israel. And who's Israel? Israel is Jacob. Uh, Jacob is the wrestling one. Jacob is the one who, uh, you know, I don't know if you know, if you know the story, like from uh, Genesis chapter 33, uh, Jacob got up and he took his two wives and his two maidservants, 11 sons. We won't be talking about the two wives and all that stuff. He crossed the fort of uh, Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions and he was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. Just going forward to verse 28. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God and men and have overcome. And Jacob says, please tell me your name. Please tell me your name. And he says, why do you ask me my name? He's saying, I'm God. That's who you're wrestling with. It's implied here. Get it, dummy. And then he blessed him there. And so for us, I think it's intentional that when we uh, go into prayer and we go into this life that we recognize that we are God's beloved wrestling ones. We are God's beloved wrestling ones, his beloved uh, struggling ones. We struggle through to a place of being blessed by God. If we're honest, even prayer itself is a struggle. And I think in the very name that we're given as we speak to ourselves, because that's what we're doing. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Aaron. Hear anybody who's listening to Aaron. You're a wrestling one. Aaron, you're a wrestling one. God knows it, Aaron, but you're blessed, Aaron. You're blessed. He loves you coming through the wrestle to a place of hell. You can put your name in there. He loves you uh, through to a place of blessing. So hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. We come through honest wrestling to a place of being accepted and being blessed. Right? That's how we get there. Honestly acknowledging where we're at and coming through to a place ultimately of health. Uh, the next uh, word that I want to talk about in here is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai. And these are just proper nouns, proper nouns for God. And I just think it's worth acknowledging, like, just the wordiness of this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like, did you really need the Lord in there twice and God in there once? Like, it seems kind of repetitive. What's he doing? What, what, what's being emphasized there? And anytime you see something emphasized in the Hebrew, uh, in, in Hebrew poetry and Hebrew writing, uh, it's really important to pay attention to it. I think what God wants us to know by praying this prayer in this way is that God is a personal God. God is a personal God. He is not uh, an ethereal force. He is not some kind of distant uh, thing. He is not something that is far away. He is a person with whom you can relate, a person who longs to be near you and longs to be close to you, that you can have a personal relationship within him. He has likes and dislikes and preferences and passion uh, about you and about who you are. 
and he can be identified. And, and we see uh, looking forward uh, to 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 4 is that Paul is further modifying the Shema in those texts and he's tying it to Jesus. He's saying here, Jesus is one. Jesus and the Father are one. So you are able to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just getting to know God and feeling good feelings about this guy who's way the heck out there. He is near you and wants to know you and wants to be known by you. And when we read the story of Jesus, we know the character and the heart of God. And we know that person that we're meant uh, to follow. He's a person. And then we look at this, this other word that seems like it should just be the same as the Lord, our God. It just rep, seems like repetition. But this is Adonai in the New Testament text and Yahweh in the Old Testament text. Uh, sorry, that's the, that's the name. But this is, this is uh, Elohim. Apologies. This is Elohim, which means exceedingly great. And, and actually, in, in a lot of interpretations, it's just, it's just interpreted exceedingly. You just, God is just exceedingly. And I'm stuck. I, can't, I don't know what else to say. He's just exceedingly everything. He's just more. He's just too much. He's big, right? He's big. He is a big, big God. And for what the Hebrew person reading this, what they're hearing is, this God is mighty to save. This God is not too small to reach me. This God is not too small to reach out his hand and touch me and lay hold of my life and make a difference and deliver me. This is the great and mighty God who delivered the people of Israel when they were crossing the Red Sea and parted the waters for them and drew them across into safety and took them to the promised land. He is a great and mighty and powerful God and he can reach you. He can reach you in your addictions. He can reach you in your pain. He can reach you in your grief. He can reach you uh, in your hurt. He can reach you. He is not too small to save you. He is not too small to reach you. He is mighty. And not only is he big enough to reach you, but he holds this whole thing in the palm of his hands. He is not some wimpy little God. That's what they're saying here. He is not some wimpy little God. He's not some small God. He's worthy of your time, worthy of your attention. He can reach you. He can care for you. And I saved this uh, one little word in the middle. I saved it for last uh, intentionally. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Or sorry, we're on one. I'm sorry I jumped ahead. Um, so hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is all together. He is whole. He is singular. He is all at once. This is an important declaration for the Jewish people and an important declaration for us. He is not many gods. He is not a whole pile of idols. He is not fractured. He is not broken. He is not confused. He is not wrestling with his identity. He is one God. And think of the joy and freedom that come to us as we realize that we can worship him as God, one and only, and lay aside our idols. How many of you know that we are just chasing idols all the time? We're chasing idols all the time. 
but he is one God. And when we declare this to ourselves and we declare this uh, to one another, we're calling ourselves back to the center. We're calling ourselves back to the worship of one God. And uh, you, you might be here from, from any number of different places. You might be here having uh, tried out Buddhism and Hinduism and, and tried out Islam and tried out all kinds of other different things. Or you might be a person who's here and saying, hey, it doesn't matter. You can worship any God you want to worship. Uh, they're all the same. But God calls us to this singular understanding, to this singular person, Yahweh, Adonai, and says, I am one. You don't need to be confused about me. I've revealed myself to you in Jesus. And you can follow me and you can live life with the singularity and with clarity of purpose and clarity of a sense of who you're following and what you're after. Uh, he demands our full attention and in truth, we would be happier without our idols anyway. Right? We'd be happier without our idols anyway. Right? These things that we're chasing don't ultimately provide us long-term joy. They just don't. They don't provide us long-term joy. Joy is found in following him with passion. And I left this last uh, word uh, for us. It was in the middle, but I saved it at the end. Because I think it's really important, this word, Our. And we see this in the Greek, we don't see it in the, in the Hebrew, uh, but it felt like, it feels, seems like something Mark needed to emphasize. Uh, and the word there means uh, claimed together. So when you think of that word are, it's a possessive, isn't it? It's like, that, that's, that's mine. But it's not just a singular possessive. It's not like you're just saying to yourself, hey, God is my God. Uh, there, there's, there's somebody who, who, I, who I would hear often talk sometimes, and, and one of the little tag phrases is, oh, he's my Jesus, he's my Jesus. Like, he is not, he's mine! Who are, who are you? He's our God. He's our God. Ours all together. A God that we claim, and a God that claims us. There's something in that phrase that unites us, that unites us with the Roman Catholics down the road, that unites us, unites us with the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals and the Baptists and, and our sister churches. It says that we are serving one God altogether. One God altogether. We claim him together. We are part of a community and a community of witness that our is claiming something. It's a possessive. We claim to follow him and we say it out loud and we're not ashamed to say that we follow him. Because we have an incredible sense of belonging. And I want to just end with this one uh, story. Uh, in France in 1975, at the end of the Second World War, there were um, uh, a number of different monasteries, uh, different uh, orphanages, where uh, children, Jewish children, whose parents had been rushed off to concentration camps, uh, who'd, been, who'd been taken away from them, or those children had been rescued uh, from those families, and they'd been taken away into these Christian monasteries that, uh, that the German soldiers would sort of keep their distance from, and, and there were all these Jewish children hiding out in there, and some of these kids came into these uh, orphanages, these monasteries, uh, early in the war, sometimes even before uh, war was declared, and they'd been in there for a long time. 
And in 1945, when the war ended, uh, rabbis from the U.S. and from different parts uh, of the world came uh, to the orphanages of Europe to claim and to find the Jewish children that had been hidden there. And there's this famous story of, of, of these rabbis that came into this one monastery in southern France. And when they came to collect the Jewish children that were there, the, the monks said, listen, we, we, don't even, we don't know which of these children are the Jewish children. We have no way of knowing which, which ones are, are, are yours. And the rabbi, or the wise, wise rabbi, said, oh, just wait, we'll come back tonight. And the rabbi came at night, and he walked down the row of the sleeping children just as they were going to bed. And the rabbi says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And one by one, a certain number of those children just sat up in bed and raised their hands and covered their eyes. And the rabbi said, those are our kids. We're taking them home. Those are our kids. We're taking them home. The Shema, these prayers, these theological thoughts are meant to be something inside of you that live inside of you that when you hear the Father calling you to prayer, when you hear the Father calling you to belonging, when you hear the Father calling you to relationship, these things are wired deep inside of you. So when he, the great rabbi, comes wandering into our room where we're lost, where we're lost in our addictions, where we're lost chasing other religions, where we're lost chasing after so many things that aren't him, we hear the father's voice saying what Jesus would say or the voice of the shepherd saying, come my little child, come my little child, come and be with me, come and belong. And if you're here, maybe you've never accepted Jesus. Maybe you've never accepted that he wants you, that you have a home with him. But something in your heart is saying, I, I want to belong to him. Let your mental hand rise up to your head and say, I hear that call of the father and I want to belong with you. God's coming into our lives in that way. And there's all kinds of areas where we're lost. And he wants to bring you home. He wants to bring you home. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Let's stand. Father, I pray for every one of us who has something written in our hearts that knows that we belong to God, but we've been, uh, we've been in captivity. We've been in the orphanage of lostness. We haven't been home with you. We've been chasing after other things. We ask that we would hear you calling us. We'd hear you calling us back to you. 
for anyone here who's never accepted you as their Lord, as their God? Would they hear you calling to them? And Lord, would we respond with this declaration? Here, the Lord our God is one God. You are our God. We ask that as we learn to pray this, as we pray it with our hearts, however it works uh, for us, that we would be declaring to ourselves that you are God and we simply belong to you. And that our decisions and our hearts, our mind, our will, and our emotions would be quickly tuned to loving you and following you. That we would become singular people as you are a singular God. We love you, Jesus. Take our lives. Amen. Let me just repeat after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you're here this morning and you feel like you have business to do, like you have been lost and you feel like God is calling you home uh, in any sort of area, you have business to do with the Lord. These uh, front seats, we won't touch them for a while. You could come and sit uh, and pray. Our elders team will be having an eye out for that and be willing to just spend a little bit of time with you and pray for you. If you're dedicating uh, your life to the Lord for the first time, come and pray. Uh, if you're uh, rededicating your life to the Lord, come and pray. Share your story with a friend. We we just want to walk with you. We want to pray with you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.